You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, I would like to start to remind you that uh, if you have not done so, make sure you visit wealthformula.com, which is the website that is the home base for this particular podcast. There are lots of resources there, and there's lots of places to sign up for stuff, including our accredited investor group. If you meet the criteria of being an accredited investor, part of what we're going to talk about today, actually, then you should definitely consider joining our investor club and taking all of this theoretical stuff that we talk about here and putting it to work and putting some lazy money to work. But that's only if you're accredited. And uh, check it out, wealthformula.com, and uh, sign up. Now, in terms of today's show, this uh, admittedly was not going to be an Ask Buck show. That was not the plan, but... There was some snafus with scheduling and that sort of thing. We have a whole bunch of recordings that are happening next week for various guests on the show. However, this uh, this week we ended up not having anybody uh, ready to go. So instead what I did is I, I went and hit the database for all the aspect questions. They're always popular shows anyway. And we went and we uh, picked out some questions that we thought would be useful. And uh, we're going to go with that. So when we come back... It's another episode of Your Questions Ask Buck. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And with that said, I'm just going to start. I'm going to get into this. And all of these questions here today that I'm doing, they're all ones that I need to read rather than they be recording. Uh, I do want to remind you for future reference, I would love it if you'd submit questions to Ask Buck. You can do it as written questions, but even better if you go to uh, if you go to wealthformula.com, there's a little speaker function. I think it's like ask Buck a question or whatever, and you record it, and that's really exciting for everybody involved, including myself. So go ahead and 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 do that. And in the meantime, let's start with the current questions. The first one is from Chris. Uh, Chris says, "I have a question about business ownership and its effect on taxes. I have two businesses that I am actively involved in as an owner." For personal tax returns, we use married filing jointly. If I make my wife a passive partial owner in these businesses, would we save on taxes since she would not materially participate in the businesses? If so, is there a percentage that would be considered too high to give to her? So, Chris, these are actually very sophisticated questions to ask, and even if I thought I knew, legally I should not do so because I'm not a tax professional, cannot give you tax advice. However, knowing what I know, this is something structurally that potentially you could work on. You could do something similar to this and get it done, but you're going to need a lot of layers of you know sophistication and tax planning here. This is definitely not something what I would, you know, that, that you, you know, you do, do it yourself, you know, do, you know, do it at home kind of thing. Otherwise you're going to get yourself into some trouble. You're going to need a really good CPA. Uh, I would suggest maybe a tax professional. Uh, if you don't have one, you can look at uh, wealthability.com, Tom Wheelwright's group. Uh, let them know you're with us because that's always helpful. They know that people who are coming from our group are uh, really need top-notch support. 
But listen, here's the thing. What you're trying to do in concept is really, I think, uh, valid, and I think there's something there, so you should pursue it. Uh, it may not be exactly in in the form that you are thinking about, but uh, but I think it's worth doing. Now, for everyone out there who's wondering what the heck that Chris is even thinking about and why he would do it, what he's referring to are some concepts that we covered in episode 233 with Tom Wheelwright. Now, the take home on that show was that creating passive income and, you know, really changing your facts. We called it, you know, if you want to take your change your tax, you have to change your facts because that's Tom Wheelwright's mantra. And part of the changing of facts is making it so that more of your income is is uh, in the passive income bucket. Because what we discussed on that show is that in many ways, that passive income bucket and, and putting more money in there is, you know, one of the holy grails, maybe not the holy grail per se, of tax mitigation. Of course, you know, we all love the idea of mailbox money, and that's what people think of when they think of, you know, passive income, obviously. And of course, that's great. You know, you get passive income. How, how much better than that, right? It's passive. You don't have to do anything. But, you know, more sophisticated people, more sophisticated investors know that you're also able to do a lot more with it in terms of applying various deductions, uh, such as depreciation from your real estate to it. So it is, um, it's really important stuff. So on that show, again, I think, again, what did I say, episode 233, I marked it down here. What Tom discusses uh, is, um, is really important. He says that for business owners like Chris here, generating passive income might be possible just from potentially changing ownership structures with the potential help of, you know, some of these other strategies like trusts, et cetera. So Chris, I would suggest highly that you go back and listen to that episode because what you're suggesting may be very well possible if structured properly. Maybe it involves your children. Maybe it involves trusts in your children, but it's not simple. It's not a do it, do it at home proposition. So uh, make sure you get someone who's sophisticated and knowledgeable in that area. The good news is that in principle, I've seen people do similar things to what you're suggesting. So, you know, there, there is definitely uh, worth looking into. Now, next question is from Corrine, and she says, we have averaged $300,000 for the last eight years, of which 2020 was 417000 However, we dropped below the $300,000 mark in 2019 and 2018 due to change in our business. Really want to be part of the investor club. What can I do to expedite this? Example, can I get investor's license of some sort? How do you qualify for a sophisticated investor? So these are all great questions. So um, so I want to sort of start broadly so that we make sure that we um, get everybody on board. So to start out, uh, you know, most private placements uh, you see out there uh, come in two forms. One is the old-fashioned one called Regulation uh, D, 506B. This is the one that in our accredited investor group, we typically use for real estate in our, uh, you know, for our uh, accredited investor club for anybody who's in that. Um, now, in order uh, for that, uh, you, you have to essentially be part of, a, um, you know, of a community like ours. And then, uh, 
you know, we no person uh, outside of that group necessarily can uh, see an offering from us. So no specific opportunities can be presented to an investor until they, you know, they fill out our paperwork saying they're accredited uh, after they approach us about investing. Uh, and then there's an additional requirement of touch points, um, you know, with me uh, or our team. So technically, this kind of offering allows for uh, what you alluded to as well. It's for accredited and so-called sophisticated investors. So what is a sophisticated investor? Well, that's the problem. What is a sophisticated investor? Now, listen, this where there is ambiguity there is plenty of opportunity for abuse. And now the, the real estate guru camps take advantage of this nebulous label and suggest that as soon as you pay them money, that you become sophisticated and you can participate in these Reg D 506B offerings. Now, hey, who am I to you know define that since the law was left with such uh, uh, you know nebulous uh, uh, definition? So I'm not going to really say more than that. You can probably say, see from my tone what I think of that. Uh, however, I will point out that most high-level syndicators, you know, quality sponsors out there that are putting together good opportunities and private equity, they're really not interested in playing around with the law. So when it comes to this idea of sophisticated investors, they're just going to say, uh, yeah, that's that's no good. We, yeah, you're right. We're doing a 506B and it says you can be accredited or sophisticated, but we are really not interested in sophisticated investors because we don't know exactly how to define it. And all of a sudden, one day you lose money in a deal and you say, hey, but I was not accredited. And we say, you know, but you did say you were sophisticated and you say, but um, I'm not sophisticated, right? Because because if I'd known, I would have <laughs> not invested. Anyway, it, it becomes that kind of thing. And so so most, you know, high level, uh, you know, professionals out there, professional groups are not going to let you participate if you are the so-called sophisticated investor. You know, um, by the way, I should point out in our uh our investor club, our credit investor club, our Reg D group here. Yeah, you know, we don't do sophisticated investors either. So um, we have to be, you know, black and white about that. And it's for the same reason. We just don't want to play with anything that's um, not very clear. Okay, so going back to this uh, definition of of what an accredited investor is. Um, well, it used to be uh, that, well, it still is, that an individual used to, uh, you have to make $200,000 per year for two consecutive years with a reasonable expectation of doing the same in the future. And then this number goes up to $300,000 per year if filing jointly. And that, of course, is why Corrine mentions uh, $300,000 uh, in her question, and presumably it's because she's filing jointly. Now, you could also be accredited if you have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. And the outside of the personal residence part is important because that is addressing something, you know, on the coast, like in California, New York, people, many people became millionaires because the prices of their homes went up so much. Uh, and the legislation specifically addresses that and says, nope, that doesn't count just because you're uh, rich because of your house. 
doesn't tell us that you're sophisticated enough. And, you know, just to be clear, this whole idea, this whole notion is predicated on this idea that, you know, if you're rich, you must be, you must, or if you make more money, you probably know more, you're probably more sophisticated and take care of your own money. Uh, but the idea of these laws is also that private placements are less regulated, uh, which is true, uh, and therefore more risky, and that people with money, uh, again, are more sophisticated, uh, potentially, and less likely to be hurt by losing money uh, in an investment that goes south. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. I'm just telling you the facts of what's out there. Now, the challenge is, for most people, that I will tell you that I truly believe that the best investment opportunities uh, out there, you know, make, to make money really are in the private space, you know, private equity, private equity, real estate, um, other types of private equity. Anyway, the world of private equity is where money is made, big returns are made, and it's not available uh, up until now, I guess, uh, not really available to, you know, non-accredited types. Um, so the good news is that recently there, uh, the laws did change to expand the definition of accredited investors a little bit. And so here, ultimately, Kareen is the answer to your question, because in addition to those financial ways of qualifying as an accredited investor, um, the uh, law has now been expanded to include people who have passed either the Series 7, Series 65, or Series 82 licenses. Now, uh, it's also allowed for knowledgeable employees of the fund. That's a quote. Uh, to participate. So if it's somebody who is, you know, working at a fund and they know it well, but they're not accredited, they can participate. They're considered accredited for that particular opportunity. Now, so long uh, winded answer to your question, but hopefully now that that's something that everybody understands. If you are not uh, accredited by the standards of, you know, of, of the 200,000, 300,000 million, you know, stuff that we talked about before, you could take the Series 65. Series 65, I understand, is not terribly difficult. So if you want to study and, hey, you know, it's financial education. It's probably worth it uh, to, to do it anyway if, if you're really interested in being in private, uh, private investments. Uh, just remember that, of course, once you start getting into private investments, you know, the investment minimums are frequently going to be, you know, a little bit higher, right? I mean, um, it's 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 pretty typical to be at least fifty thousand dollars an opportunity, et cetera. So you need to be able to also uh, deploy capital. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to be accredited, but you also have to be able to actually invest. So that's basically the deal there. Now, just uh, to be complete, because I've talked uh, exclusively about what I said here, um, which is this re regulation D five hundred six B. There is another um, a kind of offering that you will see out there. Uh, this one, for example, our WF Velocity ATM fund uses. And this is called a Regulation D506C, not B, the C. And this offering does allow for sponsors to do general solicitation. So if you're on Facebook and someone's advertising an investment and it shows some pro formas on there and projected returns, that kind of thing, that has to be a Reg D506C uh, because the law there is that in exchange for general solicitation, right, so that you can 
you know, people are doing this can advertise. They can, you know, run a you know radio ad on my show or something like that. The sponsor must use a third-party verification of accredited investor status. And so a third-party verification letter usually means, you know, like a CPA letter or a letter of verify invest, you know, or, or go to verifyinvestor.com. That's a very common platform. Um, you know, listen, uh, the Reg D506C, it is a lot more cumbersome because of this, uh, but you do see that a lot uh, these days. And again, the only offering that we do like that is one that, you know, you see us actually advertise for that reason, which is uh, the WF Velocity ATM fund. All right, on to the next question. Jeff asked the question, Buck, do you still see life settlements as a viable part of a diversified, well-rounded portfolio? You have life settlement investments. Um, uh, you have listed them before, but I haven't heard you speak about it on the podcast in a long time. So wondering if you still thought it held a place in an overall investment strategy. Obviously, a fund once, uh, obviously a fund once weight growth approach. Um, he says, thank you for not only learning and vetting everything you do, but for sharing it with us here Uh as mere mortals, so we can grow our wealth and enrich our families' lives. Please keep the great content. Thank you. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say, Jeff. And I proved uh, proved, proved through COVID that I am actually mortal um, myself. Uh, so anyway, that uh, what is a life settlement? Let's start with that. Okay, let's start out with that because that's really, I think, you know, the purpose of having these shows is going broad and making sure that everybody's learning. Um, so people who have permanent life insurance, so we're talking about whole life, not term, uh, typically, um, you know, they have them for years and years. Maybe they accrued a little bit of cash value over the years as well. Uh, if they want to, uh, typically, um, you know, if they want to, they can sell their life insurance policies to a third party. And when they do that, let life insurance policies considered a life settlement. So that's what a life settlement is. Um, the Supreme Court had, had actually established um, the legality of this whole thing about 100 years ago. Um, and uh, the story was basically there was a, a guy who needed some surgical procedure and this, he didn't have any money. The surgeon said, well, you know, uh, what do you got? Maybe we can barter something. And I said, well, you know, I got this life insurance policy. So the surgeon did the, um, did the policy and uh, sure enough, later on, the, the guy died. And, and then the surgeon tried to collect. And then the insurance company said, no, you can't do that. And then it went to the Supreme Court. And sure enough, uh, it, it, uh, the Supreme Court determined that a life insurance policy is indeed an asset and can be sold to somebody else. So um, anyway, so that's, that's the back end of the story there. I will say that, uh, in my opinion, if you are going to have an operation or put yourself in the hands of somebody and in you trade something, it might not be a good idea to trade your life insurance policy and then go under the knife with the person that benefits if you die. I think that that's probably generally not a very good idea to do. Now, I'm sure this 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 surgeon had good intentions, and and he certainly uh, the story is not that the patient died. At surgery, but that certainly would make it a lot more interesting Supreme Court case, I think, don't you? Um, anyway, um, like I said, a life insurance po uh, policy uh, has been established as an asset that you can sell, right? So 
Um, so how does this work then? So say you're 80 years old, you're in good health, uh, you're, you know, you're running out of your retirement money, right? Because you, you know, you listen to people who told you to buy a bunch of mutual funds and they said, you know, there was something called a 4% rule that was invented back in the fifties and sixties. And you thought, Hey, I'm, as long as I do this, I'm going to use my 4% rule. And then you're 80 years old and you're like, hey, I've already lived longer than I'm you know, supposed to, according to the information. What's up with this 4% rule? And uh, you realize that you may end up living a lot longer because you're pretty healthy, and um, but you're running out of money. And the good news is that all your kids are successful and you don't need to really leave them you know, all the life insurance stuff that you're going to leave them anymore. Uh, and so you're figuring, okay, well, maybe you can, uh, sell your life insurance policy to somebody, uh, for a good price and, and then use this as part of your, your retirement. Now, typically this is a very good deal, uh, for the seller of a life insurance policy because, you know, there's a reimbursement, uh, the reimbursement that they get is quite a bit more than the surrender value of a policy. That is the, any cash value or whatever surrender policy includes there. Uh, it's quite a bit more than that. So it's a good deal for somebody who's in that position. They want to sell their policy and it helps with retirement. And you're seeing these commercials pop up all the time, right? You see, you know, oh, you can sell your life insurance policy, you know, like that stuff. And those those essentially are um, brokers that are buying those. And then uh, people invest in them, uh, bid for these policies. So that's how that works. So, um, again, it's also a pretty good deal for the investor because they're, they're, they're typically buying these things for 50 cents on the dollar compared to the death benefit. Uh, now, the payout is guaranteed because death is guaranteed, and it's just a matter of when. So at the end of the day, the tricky thing is trying to figure out how much you'll actually make. The longer a person lives, the this, you know the shorter um, or the smaller uh, value of that return on investment. So if you go to hedgetheeconomy.com, you can see how you can potentially turn something like this into an interesting, you know, theoretical fund structure and how it works. Um, you know, so death is really the only guarantee in life. So it's, you know, it's a pretty solid investment. Now, what's the downside of something like this? In my opinion, well, you know, the returns are not going to be as explosive as you're seeing in, you know, some of the things that we talk about, like real estate or, you know, the WF Velocity ATM fund, for example, uh, for, for ATMs. And, um, also profits from owning life settlements are not tax free. Like the benefits someone receives the way, um, receives like when a beneficiary, like when somebody, somebody gets, uh, when, a, when, a you know, if you die and you leave your kids money, that's tax free to them. But if it's a life settlement, uh, that tax benefit goes away. So it is taxed, right? Um, so while I do like the stability of the asset, I'm not, I'm definitely not, you know, throwing it away or anything, uh, it has it has a place, like perhaps in your your qualified funds, maybe in something that's you know as a tax shelter. Anyway, hopefully that answers your question. But I, you know, quite frankly, for me, you know, I, I've gotten pretty um, for my investments in general. Like I'm really kind of focused on a lot of growth right now, and so heavy. You know, what am I doing? I'm doing you know, like a 
last year, if you look at last year, I'm doing lots of real estate, I lots of ATM stuff that I did. Um, and then, you know, and then there's, uh, there's some stuff, uh, um, you know, obviously I'm involved with that's asymmetric in nature as well. So, so those are smaller investments, but you know, I, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not, uh, saying that it's not a good investment. I just think it's different and it has a different role and it's not nearly as, you know, explosive as some of the other things we talk about, but that's okay. Not everything should be or needs to be right. All right. Next question. John has a couple questions here. He says, I have a couple questions I think a lot about, but no one seems to be talking about them. I would love to hear your thoughts. Okay, so the first question is, there's a lot of stimulus on the way for lower-income Americans, including doubling the minimum wage, which it looks like, actually, that's not happening. Stimulus checks and um, talk of doubling the child tax credit and paying it out in monthly payments. And that's just in the first couple months of President Biden's term with more likely to follow. This would be a huge windfall for low-income Americans and easily double their disposable income. This seems like it could have a massive impact on C-class apartment buildings, being able to push rents and unit upgrades. What am I missing? Why isn't anyone talking about this? How do you see this playing out? Um, well, yeah, no, I think it's a it's a great point. But, but I think people are talking about this, John, in an indirect fashion. And, you know, what is that? What is exactly what's happening there when you when you've got this money going out? Um, for stimulus checks and, you know, child tax credits and all of this stuff. So this is, um, this is, you know, this is helicopter money. You know, that's what uh, Ben, I think uh, they used to call Ben Bernanke, helicopter Ben. Anyway, the idea is that, you know, in order to stimulate an economy, you got to get a bunch of money into, into it. Right. And, Back in the 2008-2009, that crisis there, we learned a big lesson. The big lesson was that um, back then, uh, what they did is they gave the banks a bunch of money and they said, "Here, go lend it out to these businesses," and um, you know, and 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 you know, then that way we're going to get a uh, we're going to stimulate the economy because a bunch more money is going to go into the uh, and GDP will go up. The problem was they gave to these banks and the banks didn't lend it out. They just put it on their own balance sheet and they just decided to sit on it. So what they're doing is actually a lot smarter in many ways, because the intent, the full intent of these kinds of stimulus programs is to get money in the hands of people so they can spend it. Right. And, um, that's the idea behind calling it helicopter money. So you're just, you know, the idea is, you know, you're in a helicopter and you're dropping money to people. Well, hey, you know, if you're going to stimulate the economy and your intent is to put uh, dollars into the pockets of the people who are going to spend it, that is a much better way to do it than to give it to banks. So I think that's what's happening. Now, when you do that with any stimulus, the, um, you know, the risk there is, uh, um, and what people are talking about is really inflation, right? It's just driving uh, the ideas that we're going to drive uh, inflation up. Although, frankly, we're not, you know, seeing we're not seeing, uh, in you know, significant inflation right now. Um, so, uh, so although some people are talking more bro uh, broadly about that in the sense that they are talking about the result being inflation, right? So, inflation, um, remember helps 
uh, us as real estate investors, not only in the way you just described it, uh, which is essentially, you know, uh, hedging inflation vis-a-vis rent growth, but we also benefit from inflation uh, because inflation erodes debt. That's a really, really important thing for real estate investors to remember. Uh, it is the use of that big L in the wealth formula, leverage. Inflation erodes debt. Remember that. It is so important. Inflation erodes debt. Whatever you borrow today uh, will be worth less when you pay it back in the future. So think about that $50,000 mortgage your parents took out 20 years ago to buy a house that was $250,000. Really nice house back 20 years ago, maybe. But now that house is worth a million dollars. And guess what? That $50,000 mortgage is still being paid off. But, you know, even if it was a pure $50,000, its value is really not very much, right? So that's the concept of eroding debt. When you, when you, when you have leverage and there's inflation, your, your, your debt erodes. And that's why smart leverage is very, very important to creating wealth. Now, um, so that debt is eroded. And as real estate investors go, this concept is extremely important because it allows us to effectively print our own money. I mean, that's what we're doing. Um, okay, so the next question that John has, because uh, there was two questions, was, also, I follow a lot of economists uh, via podcasts. About 90% of them seem convinced a long-term secular shift from deflation to inflation is about to happen. How might this affect the value of Class A, B, and C apartment buildings? It seems like there would be a counterbalancing effect of rising rents, but also raising cap rates. How might this all balance out at the end of the day? Let's assume sustained 4 to 5% inflation and equivalent rise in government debt rates. What would be the net effect to prices? Well, um, well, let's definitely start with the idea. What we're not in deflation, right? If we were in deflation, we would be in a hell of a catastrophic economic situation. Um, we're, uh, you know, we have low, um, we have fairly low inflation. We're trying to rise. The Fed is made it a mandate, obviously, to uh, to have inflation uh, at at least two percent. Um, uh, but deflation is a catastrophic thing, right? Um, and it would have catastrophic effects on, um, and the Fed and the government, therefore, would do anything and everything to avoid it. Why? Okay, so this is important. Again, this relates to this idea, these ideas about inflation and real estate, what I told you before. We have bills to pay, right? We have bills to pay in the form of debt, the debt that we have, the debt payments that the, our government has, we have to pay all the time. And, um, you know, again, it would be better for us as a nation to pay that debt off, uh, theoretically, and as, as I think the Fed would see it, as it erodes, right? Because if you have inflation, it's eroding. So all the money that you borrowed at one point, actually the, the you know, the actual, uh, value of that money is going down every year. And that's why inflation helps pay down that debt. 
It's like, again, it is sort of a tax. You've heard people talk about inflation being the silent tax. That's why it is, because the buying and purchasing power of your dollar is going down in order to help pay this debt off. That is effectively what's going on there. If, on the contrary, we did have a true deflationary environment, right? It's true deflation happening. We would not only get help from inflation in paying off our debt, but we would amplify the debt and potentially get into a situation where we would default on our sovereign debt. So that's why I will tell you, I think it's unlikely you will ever see that happen, even with deflationary pressures, which I think you're talking about. I think there are deflationary pressures. You know, we don't have deflation, but we have, we, we're living in a deflationary environment where, uh, you know, the pressures are down. Fiscal and monetary policy you know, like these QEs and, and you know, continued rates uh, being very, very low. All this stuff, uh, helicopter money, fiscal and monetary policy will be directed to prevent deflation like the plague, right? And that is another reason to think about how you behave. If the government and the Fed are going to do anything and everything it takes to prevent deflation and help inflation happening, well, you should probably function on a, you know, uh, an idea that it's more likely that uh, inflationary environments will be normal uh, going forward. Now, again, with respect to the effect of inflation on real estate, we raise rents with inflation and we erode debt. Now, your question about cap rates is also a good one. If we have significant inflation, uh we don't, uh, which we don't really at all right now, uh, interest rates will go up because that's what happens to long-term treasury uh, is that if there's an anticipation for inflation, rates go up. The single biggest factor in cap rates is interest rates. That's the single biggest factor in cap rates. And that's why we have historically low cap rates right now because interest rates are historically low. And as interest rates go up, so will cap rates. But remember, cap rates are ultimately going up because of inflation, which means people who bought at lower rates are in a way being protected because increases in rents hedge that market dynamic changing. Okay, Hopefully that makes sense. Go back and listen to it again because it's a mouthful. But this is all a fairly circular thing uh, that's happening. Okay, the next question is from Paresh. Paresh asks, Buck is a follow... Oh, well, he brought this up in, a, in our uh, Wealth Formula Network group. And so he actually um, wrote it out so that I could, I could share it with you. So thanks for doing that, uh, Paresh. So he says... Uh, why would someone pick a direct versus non-direct recognition cash value whole life policy? If the policy is direct recognition within this current low interest rate environment, then when would the policyholder consider a policy loan over an outside line of credit? Are there any long-term risks to the policyholder continuing to use a line of credit? Okay, so this is probably over the head of uh, a lot of people. So I actually um, thought it'd be a good idea to just have Rod record a, an answer to this, Rod of Wealth Formula Banking. Now, as you recall, 
What is wealth formula banking? Um, I'm not going to get into it too much, but it is a center core of what, what I think is a good place to start for a lot of people who are going down this route of alternative investing. And you can learn about it at wealthformulabanking.com. But what Presh is referring to here is what we're calling uh, wealth formula banking. And the concept is, you know, essentially get into these policies that allow us to overfund and then grow at a certain rate, say it's like five and a half percent compounding interest rate, and then borrow at simple interest rates uh, from the insurance company itself using your cash value to collateralize it. And in the process, uh, effectively being able to invest in two places at the same time with the same money. Anyway, if it sounds confusing, I highly recommend you go to wealthformulabanking.com because it it is something that takes a little bit of an aha moment to have. And uh, I think the webinar is quite good there. So let's see what Rod has to say about this. Hey, Paresh, I am more than happy to answer this question. And uh, I think the best place to start is just to talk about what the difference is between direct recognition versus non-direct recognition. And then we can go from there. So in inside of a whole life policy, when we take a loan against it, as we know from uh, from talking with this in uh, Wealth Formula Banking, the full account stays there and continues to grow, right? So let's say I have $100,000 in my, in my account. I take a $60,000 loan. My full $100,000 stays in the account and continues to grow. This uh, difference between direct and non-direct is... Uh, it's telling me how my account grows for the portion of the cash value that's acting as collateral. So in the non-direct recognition policy, uh, my account continues to grow. The full 100000 is growing the same way it was previously based on the guaranteed interest in the dividend. Okay. In the direct recognition, what happens is the portion of the cash value, in this example, the 60000 that's sitting in the cash value acting as collateral against the loan, continues to grow, the calculation on how much interest it's earning is different. It's actually linked, it's directly linked to the interest that I'm paying on the loan. So depending on how much interest I'm paying will determine how much interest I'm earning on that portion that's acting as collateral. Okay. So then the next natural question is, well, which one's better? And this is a, it's kind of a tricky question because it depends, it depends on economic conditions. In other words, if I'm in a low interest rate environment like we have right now, or a, a dropping interest rate environment, then I can have a situation where the combined guaranteed interest and dividend that I'm earning is higher than the loan rate that I'm paying. And so in that scenario, uh, by taking a loan, I actually end up earning a little bit less interest in my account uh, than I would have by leaving it there and continuing to earn, earn the way it was, right? However, in a rising interest rate environment or a high interest rate environment, the direct recognition is better because the interest rate went up on what I'm paying on my loan. Now I'm paying more, uh, therefore I'm earning more on that portion that, uh, of the cash value that's acting as collateral than what I was earning uh, on the other side with the guaranteed interest and dividend. So over the course of having a policy, uh, let's say it's direct recognition, there are going to be times when I'm grateful because I'm earning more interest because of that. Uh, there'll be times when maybe it would have been better to have the non-direct, but the whole point is that over time, I only have one or the other, but because there's a more important factor here um, that actually is, is the criteria that we use to uh, decide what company and what product to offer, 
It's actually the structure of the policy itself. So in other words, uh, the different companies, the different products, when you line them up and we say, okay, with X amount of money going into the policy, which one converts that into the best cash value? And it turns out that that's the more important question because if I have less money in the, in the policy to begin with, then whether it's direct or non-direct, I'm, I'm not as happy. I don't have as much money that I can be out investing, right? And so because the difference in the product makes a huge difference in how much is in the cash value that I can loan against, that becomes the more important factor, determining factor on how we decide on which company to use. And another, I think, really important point here is we often talk about the whole difference between paying simple versus earning compound interest. And that's another factor that kind of bails me out either way, whether I'm direct or non-direct, I'm I'm good. And then another thing kind of getting to the the second part of your of your question about as it relates to using a line of credit in conjunction with the policy. This is the idea where I can have an a third party bank where I set up a line of credit and and then the wealth formula banking strategy, it works the same, right? In other words, I have my cash value in my policy growing and then I take a loan, have a line of credit with an outside bank. Uh, when I take loans from that from the bank, it's using my cash value as collateral for those loans, but my account stays there and continues to grow, right? So I've just switched out the uh, the vehicle that I'm using for the loan. And right now, you know, if, if I'm paying 5% on a policy loan, I could be paying, you know, three, three and a half percent to the bank for this line of credit. And so in that case, then I don't, doesn't matter whether I have direct or non-direct, I'm, I'm better off uh, by having that outside line of credit. Um, so now Paresh wants to know, okay, well, when would it be better to keep the policy loan instead of using the line of credit? And this just goes back to maybe some additional factors that to consider. And, and that would be, number one, flexibility on the payback of the loan. Uh, if I have this outside line of credit with the bank, then they're going to set the terms on how I pay that back, right? Whereas with the policy loan, I can I get to decide how I pay that back. I can make interest-only payments. I can take a break and not pay any make any payments at all for a period of time. Um, and all of that works with my policy loan where it may not work, well, wouldn't work, right? If I miss payments in my on my line of credit, then all of a sudden I start getting deemed penalties and et cetera. Uh, so that would be a reason why I might choose a policy loan over an outside line of credit um, if those factors are more important than the difference in the interest rate. Uh, another might be that uh, if the cost of setting up the line of credit is higher than, than I can justify based on my plan to use use it as, as my uh, source of, of debt, then I, it just may not make sense to, to set it up in the beginning. And then um, and then the final question, are there any long-term risks to the policyholder continuing to use the line of credit? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, in, in based on kind of the current environment, then, then you would absolutely want to keep paying the three and a half percent or whatever as opposed to the five. If there ever came a time when economic conditions changed enough and you're looking at it and saying, no, I'd, I'd actually rather have use a policy loan. Uh, say, for example, if it's a direct recognition policy, interest rates are going up um, and I can earn more on my cash value 
uh, by having the loan with the policy, then I could see where switching back and using the policy loan would make sense. And, and I can do that, right? I can just then say, okay, I'm going to close out my line of credit and instead use the loan from the policy. Uh, and so I can, I can make that switch. So hopefully that adds some clarity. Feel free to reach out to me if, if there is anything I can do to add additional clarity for anyone on this question. Rod at wealthformulabanking.com. Clear as mud, right? Uh, just kidding. Rod did a great job of explaining, but this stuff is not super easy, right? These are fairly sophisticated questions that uh, are being asked from Bresh, um, you know, after um, kind of understanding the initial part of this. But conceptually, I think it's a wise idea. This is, uh, again, one of these things that I, I really do believe is core. I, I don't give you a lot of sort of direction. I think ultimately people need to make their own decisions on you know what they feel comfortable investing in. But I think that when I get asked, where do I start? I often tell you Wealth Formula Banking. And that's uh, something to check out. Uh, and you'll see why if you go to wealthformulabanking.com. Let's see. That is about it for me this week. It looks like we had just uh, we had some questions. We got them answered, and uh, I think we got some good information out. Lots of interesting interviews coming up uh, over the next few weeks. Anyway, uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully, you enjoyed that episode of Ask Buck, the unexpected episode of Ask Buck. And uh, I do encourage you to make sure you ask your questions. We go to wealthformula.com and you can send them in writing or preferably I'd love to hear your lovely voice there and make you Wealth Formula Nation famous uh, because what's, uh, what's better than that, right? Other than that, I'd like to remind you that if you like these kinds of Q&As, you know, guys like Parash and some of these uh, more sophisticated questions are coming from members of Wealth Formula Network, which is our inside inner community, uh, we do these, um, you know, in addition to a course that's involved there, there's a bi-weekly Zoom video calls uh, that are, I think, really useful and people are really, uh, I think, a big fan of them. It's worth checking out. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.